This episode, we interview J.M. DeMatteis and celebrate the 30th anniversary of the JLI. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shack, and I'll be your host for today's celebration. That's right, folks, we're having a party to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the JLI. Back on February 5th, 1987, a little book entitled Justice League No. 1 was released by DC Comics. The creative team included Keith Giffen, J.M. DeMatteis, Kev McGuire, Andy Helfer, and more. If you've been a devoted listener of this podcast, welcome back. And if you're new around here, welcome to the party. For you new folks, each month on this podcast, we recap and discuss an issue of the Justice League comics released from roughly 1987 to 1992, when the main writers were Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We're going issue by issue in chronological order, and we'll be covering the main Justice League title, Justice League Europe, Justice League Quarterly, the various spinoffs, one-shots, annuals, and so on. Each episode, I bring along a guest host. This ever-changing roster of guests includes different voices from either the podcasting community, fellow JLI fans, or even sometimes comic professionals. So far, we've covered through issue number 10 of Justice League International, with issue number 11 being covered next month. Given that today marks the 30th anniversary of this glorious comic book series, we had to do something special. So we're putting the issue reviews on hold for a month, and we're celebrating with a very special guest. In just a moment, you'll hear my interview with J.M. DeMatteis himself, co-writer and scripter of the Justice League International era. Mr. DeMatteis was kind enough to sit down with me, and we chatted for about an hour. It was an absolute blast, and I think you're going to enjoy it. If you want to join the conversation, get out there on the social media and share your thoughts, folks. You can find us on Facebook under Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast. We're also on Twitter at JLI Podcast. Or if you want, most of the conversation usually takes place on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Just look for this episode's post, go to the comments, and that's where most of the conversation is going to happen. And the whole point of this really is to try and build an online community of JLI fans to bring us together and ultimately celebrate our love for this series. Well, with that, folks, let's kick off this party with J.M. DeMatteis. All right, folks, I am here with J.M. DeMatteis. Thanks for doing the show, J.M. I know this is really going to mean a lot to the Legion of JLI fans out there. Yeah, it's a pleasure, really a pleasure. Now, I realize on the surface that this podcast probably looks like we're a bunch of nerds sitting around dissecting your comic panel by panel, which I guess we sort of really are. But really, this podcast is all about celebrating our love for the series. And that's part of the reason I have so many different guests on. I mean, every month we try and bring a different person on to get a different voice, someone else celebrating it. And it's truly beloved. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm fairly astonished by the long life these books have had and and by the the wide reach these books have had i've done some international conventions the past year and there are people in spain and greece you know coming up to me with you know translations of of all the various jli stuff that i've been reading all their life and it means so much to them and and i see that everywhere i go i see that everywhere i go and so what can i be but grateful you know that's got to be a tough gig, translating jokes to make sure they work in the subtleties of the yeah. humor. Oh, my gosh. When I was in Spain, uh, I, I met the guy that translated Brooklyn Dreams into oh. into Spanish, and they had to have a whole glossary in the back explaining <laughs> all the references. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of you know, very specific cultural, let, let alone specific Brooklyn 
uh, references in the book. So, you know, things that we don't even think about have to be explained to other people. What but, is an uh, egg cream? <laughs> right, exactly. They probably had to do two pages on that, you know? <laughs> I, uh, In fact, I'm reading Brooklyn Dreams again right now. I bought it when it first came out, and it's mm-hmm. in my long boxes somewhere, but just got it digitally and rereading it, and um, it's it got on Comixology. It's so good, so amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, IDW did a beautiful uh, new hardcover edition about two years ago that's just – the best-looking edition we've had so far. Yeah, looks great. It's fun to go back and read. You, you forget how amazing these old comics are. You know, you read, you read the current stuff, and you—I mean, this, the study of JLI is a perfect example. Well, I know your time is limited, and I, I don't mean to keep you and ramble on here. So let's get right to it. How did you first get interested in reading comics, and what were some of your favorites when you were a kid? You know, I, I've said this before. I don't remember a time when I wasn't reading comics. You know, as long as I remember being able to read, or maybe even before that, and pick up something and look at the pictures. And for the life of me, I don't know who turned me on to them. Mm. You know, for one thing, at least when I was a kid, unlike today, every kid read comics. It was just the way it was. If you were a kid, you read comics. They were available. They were everywhere. And you read them. And I, I suspect that I had a cousin who, who was into comics and might have, you know, given me a bunch of them or something. But it was one of those. Uh, and I discussed this. I, I do writing workshops periodically. And I discussed this with the class. What is it about comics? And I think those of us that are into comics, there is some it's like a drug. There's some chemical that gets released in our brain. <laughs> and, I, and it's a joke, but I mean it seriously, too. Something about that combination of words and pictures releases this chemical in our brain. We see it. And that's it. We're hooked for life and we need the next fix and the next next fix and the next fix, you know. So my whole childhood was spent reading comic books. And and also when I was a kid, comic books were every, it wasn't just superhero comics. There was every kind of comic book out there, you know. There were war comics and funny animal comics and, you know, Archie comics and gold key comics and this and that. And you, you know, there were comics everywhere. And I didn't care what it was. If it was words and pictures, I wanted to I wanted to look at it. I, sometimes I would just spread them out on the floor when I was a kid just to look at the covers. I can today pick up an old, you know, an old Marvel from the 60s or something and just look at the co- cover and it's like a time portal. Something, again, some chemical gets released in my brain and I'm suddenly in the sixth or seventh grade. Seventh grade, I think it was when I discovered Marvel. And it's, it, I might as well, it might as well be back in time. You know, there's, there's something magical about that that, you know, all these years later still hasn't gone away uh, for me. You know, there's a magic when I when I, I write I write a story and then you know through the email uh, the the art shows up you know mm-hmm. or the lettered pages show up and suddenly I'm 12 years old again you know I'm so excited <laughs> to see it all together and that excitement doesn't go away which is one of the great things about about comics for me um, so yeah so I I really loved them all and then you know as I got a little bit old, I got older and got more into superheroes you know I read all the DC stuff before I discovered Marvel and and had a special love for Green Lantern Gil Kane and Green Lantern mm. and those original uh, Justice League stories. What was it? Mike Sikowski and right. Garden Fox, you know. And then when I was in junior high school, along came Marvel, and it's like they stuck dynamite in my ear and blew up my brain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then then the years passed, and I remember I was in high school when I discovered. Uh, I was just reminded of this because someone I saw some R Crumb thing somewhere. And I remember discovering Zap Comics when I was, I don't know, a junior in high school or a senior in high school going, oh, my God, this is a comic book. Comic books can be this, too. And that <laughs> expanded the parameters in my brain of what a comic could be, you know. So uh, it's been an addiction my entire life and one I've never gotten rid of happily. Well, I, I think you've actually helped me in my personal life because uh, when I have to move houses fairly soon, I've got about 45 long boxes. And mm-hmm. my wife, every time we move, looks at me and goes, can we get rid of those now? And I now I can just 
say, honey, it's magical endorphins. I, I'm, a, I'm an addict. Uh, I've heard it from a comic professional. It is validated. I'm sorry. So right. thank you. Appreciate that. And we could start a whole new thing. You know, we could come up with treatments. <laughs> no, that implies we want to stop. <laughs> but I could make money off people's, you know, uh, significant others who want to uh, wean their, ah. their, uh, their husbands off comics, you know. <laughs> well, that, that's a good back-end business. I mean, if you're going to get people out of the business of buying your work, you might as well pick right. up you know, you do yeah. – uh, right, 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 right. You know, do like a two-week treatment, charge people $10,000. I think we're on to something here. <laughs> Sign my name up, please. <laughs> uh, so when you're reading all these things, what? when did you make the decision or what was it that made you decide you wanted to write these things? You know, I was always creative. That's just – you know, it's, it's just who I am. As a kid, my first love was actually drawing. I spent a good part of my childhood on the floor, you know, with paper and crayons and markers or whatever drawing. You know, that was my passion. So there was I was I was always drawing. Then I got turned on to to music, and I think I was in the fifth grade after I saw the Beatles for the first time. Took guitar lessons, started singing and writing songs and playing in bands while I was still drawing, and then I started writing. So it was always there in me. I was always looking for creative expression, and since I loved comics so much, I mean, my goal was never to be just a comic book guy, you know. Mm-hmm. But that was certainly uh, one of the goals along the way, and so. It was only natural that I would uh, decide at some point to at least attempt to get my foot in the door, which was a uh, you know, fairly lengthy process. Now, that was a, a DC anthology book first, wasn't it? One of the weird well, yeah, tales or something? That, when I was like, I think I was eight, uh, there's a process to it. I was like 18 years old. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'd ever seen a comic book script in my life. And I decided <laughs> I was going to write a sample and send it off to Marvel. You know what I mean? Okay. I don't even remember what it was a sample of. And uh, sent it in and got back just a, the most dismissive letter. <laughs> I mean, you know, which, which in retrospect, it really wasn't very nice of them. You can always put a kind word in there, but this was not a kind letter. You know, I'm, I'm just assuming it was an assistant editor who was having a really, really bad day, you know? Right. And darn then the darn next it, Roy year, Thomas. What, what? No, it wasn't Roy Thomas. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that person did go on to be a fairly well-known uh, comic book writer, but we shall leave his name <laughs> out of it. Um, and then the, the next year when I was like 19, DC was starting an apprenticeship program, which was like really cool, where they were taking, you know, newbies who knew nothing and they were going to train them. And they actually sent a, a sort of script formatting sample. And, oh. and I always look back like with, with my jaw dropping because what I decided I would write as a sample would be a Justice League story. Okay. Okay. So team books are difficult to write on the best of days with years of experience. <laughs> but when you don't know what the hell you're doing to sit down and write a Justice League story, it's insane. But the great thing was, I mean, I didn't get into the program and that was fine, but I got feedback, kind, oh. intelligent feedback, you know, okay. which was very encouraging. And and uh, long story short, eventually I, I, uh, I, wrote to, I wrote to DC. I actually got through someone I knew at Marvel, I had a couple of stories published in Crazy Magazine. How's that oh. for a start? Okay. To start at the bottom and work your way to the top, you know? <laughs> but I was very, very grateful, and I got a check with Spider-Man's face on it, you know? But that didn't do anything for me in terms of getting me in with the comic book side of Marvel, so that wasn't working. And I just sent a blind letter into DC. And I actually sent a letter, and I had a bunch of samples. Uh, mm. I had a Superman sample, a Plastic Man sample, mm. um, which is sort of pre-JLI goofy humor, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, and an original thing of mine called Stardust, which eventually evolved into Moonshadow. Oh, uh, wow. Like okay. years later, years later, very, very different in its early stages, you know. And they basically wrote back and said, hey, you know, we, um, we're we not going to buy Superman stories from some guy we've never heard of, but 
Paul Levitz is looking for stuff for the anthology books, which are things like Weird War Tales and House of Mystery and House of Secrets and, you know, Weird Housewives or whatever else they had. <laughs> <laughs> and I had never read those books in my life, so I ran out and I bought a bunch of copies, read them, and then uh, sent Paul a bunch of plots. Uh, not plots, I guess they were just short pitches, maybe a page each. I still have the letter from Paul that came back and tore my plots to shreds, <laughs> criticized my typing. I mean, really just eviscerated. <laughs> but at the very end, it said, feel free to submit again. Okay. And, you know, when you're starting out, uh, at least the way I was, you just look for any little door that's open. Mm -hmm. And he said, feel free to submit again. So I did. And, you know, looking back also, as someone pointed out to me, the very fact that Paul even took the time to sit down to read and critique these things right. says a lot about Paul, you know. And so I, I would send I sent in some more ideas. You know, he crit critiqued them again. And then finally, since I was living in Brooklyn and D.C. was in Manhattan, I went up to the office and we sat down. We bounced some things around. I, I had an idea that he liked. And long story short, short he he bought it. Awesome. And I will never forget Paul Levitz turning to me, shaking my hand and saying, welcome to the business, which oh. was like just a great moment. You know, that's fantastic. That's all. Awesome. It was all of like, you know, nine at the time. And I'm only slightly exaggerating. You know? <laughs> You know, he started working there when he was in high school. Right. <laughs> you know, he, he could barely grow a mustache. <laughs> so, and, that, and that was the beginning, you know, of a career that's led me, you know, through comics and TV and movies and books. And it just it was, you know, it was all through that door. Wow. Well, speaking of landing gigs, how did you land the gig writing and closing up shop on the, you know, the classic Justice League of America? And then how did that dovetail into the relaunch of Justice League? As I remember, well, it was all because of Andy Helfer, you know, mm -hmm. who I, let's start right off the bat. There'd be no Justice League as we know it, JLI, without Andy Helfer. He was the linchpin of the whole team. I think a different editor in that position and the book wouldn't have been half as good. Um, one of the best editors to ever sit behind a desk at DC or anywhere. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the best people. Andy and I actually, we found out after we met, grew up across the street from each other, but he was like five years younger than me. So we uh -oh. never acted, you know, but mm -hmm. we lived. Literally, we're across the street from each other through our childhood. <laughs> I'm going to look for him in the background of the Brooklyn Dreams now. <laughs> That's right. I should have done that. Well, and he and he was, you know, he ran uh, Paradox or uh, Press when he was you know, when we were in Brooklyn. So that was like really beautiful symmetry oh, that he wow. got behind that, you know. But uh, you know, I knew Andy from when he was an intern at DC, and we became buddies right away and, and worked together. And and I guess Jerry Conway had left. Uh, Justice League. Mm -hmm. And it was right at the time when I had just left Marvel. Um, I had been under contract at Marvel for quite a few years, and I, and I left there. And basically, you know, I needed some work. He said, hey, Conway just left. I need somebody to step in and, and do this. So I stepped in. I finished off some story that Jerry had started, and then they asked me to do the end of the Justice League story where we killed off Vibe and whoever else, Steel. That really, that, that one really stuck. Uh, well, <laughs> hey, it's comic books. No death is going to stick. That's right. Once, you know, once Bucky came back, all bets were off. You know? <laughs> uh, and and so that you know, so I wrote that, and I had a good time. Worked with I think Luke Ross drew that. Mm -hmm. And then I guess behind the scenes, they were plotting this new you know through, relaunch through Legends of a new Justice League. And at some point, Andy called me and said, Giffen is uh, is plotting this. He, I think originally Keith wanted to to write the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did not feel confident at that point that he could handle the whole the whole deal. Hmm. Looking back, I think he could have he could have done it easily. I think it was just a question not of talent and ability, but of self confidence. You know. Okay. And so Andy sent me Keith's first plot, which was more than a plot. It was like you know half a script, really. You know. Mm -hmm. 
and said, you know, we come in and, you know, finish this up and, and clean it up and add, add to it and blah, 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 blah. And I look, I said, you don't need me. I mean, this is the first year, six months of Justice League was me arguing, going, you don't need me. I don't need to do this, really. <laughs> yes, we need you. Please, Keith wants you to do it, blah, 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 blah. So, I, you know, I did the first issue and then, you know, this, and then we're working on the second. And suddenly, you know, it was a gig. But I actually tried to quit a couple of times in the beginning. I've told this story before and it, and I, and it makes me seem like an idiot because I absolutely was. <laughs> I had, you know, just come off Moonshadow and Blood and all these deep personal projects that I ripped from the deeps of my soul, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and uh, and the Justice League gig was just easy and fun. Mm-hmm. And then the book came out, and, and it wasn't just easy and fun, but it was a big hit. Right. And part of me is thinking, well, no, this easy and fun, this can't be right. It has to be, I have to pull it from the depths of my soul and you know, wrestle with it and blah, 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 you know? And then one day I woke up after, you know, maybe trying to quit for the second or third time and went, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. This is a great gig. I'm having so much fun. And that was that. And then, you know, five years later, we all woke up and went, oh, my God, how did five years go by? Wow. And I think at one point, Mike Carlin was going to take over for me because mm-hmm. it came that close to me leaving and then i went wait a minute i'm not quitting forget it you know perfect yeah i mean how often do you find a job where you're successful and it's something you love doing it just yeah well you know and the good news about comics is 90 percent of the time that's what it is you know maybe it's not always a hit but we do love doing it and that's the great thing about just being a writer in general is uh and you know sometimes it like everything else it becomes a job i was just saying this to somebody yesterday and then i have to take a half uh, half step back and remind myself and go like go back in time and find my 12 year old self and say guess what they pay me to write comic books and cartoons <laughs> and then my 12 year old self faints and right. i realize oh, this is a really good gig you know when you're 12 you don't even know that people get paid to do that they just think no i had happen. no clue you know i was a working class kid from brooklyn i didn't i couldn't fathom that you know the idea of and then you know while marvel came along at least there were names on the comics that i could relate to you know mm-hmm. uh, but it was like it was to me the idea of get, getting to do that was like staring up at the monolith from 2001 and having to climb over it <laughs> you know i mean because i didn't know anyone like that i i couldn't conceive that you that, that it was possible to do something like that and you know you add that to the mix and and then you look back and you feel really really grateful so with JLI, where did the funny come from? I mean, where at what point in the stage? Was that already in Keith's plot outline? Did it just organically yeah, happen? Yeah, you know, Keith, Keith and Andy will say that they never – when they when they mapped out the basic idea, they, the idea was not to do funny superheroes ever. It was just to do a, a fun superhero book. Mm-hmm. Keith, by his nature, there's, there's, there's a lighter touch. There's humor that's always going to be in there. I have that side of myself, and I picked up on what Keith was doing. So I would – I you know, my, my standing joke is, is that – and it's only half, half a joke – is that my job is to take some funny thing that Keith does in the plot and then spend 22 pages beating it into the ground, you know? <laughs> uh, repeat that joke over and over and over and over and over again because nothing works better than a running gag, right? Um, but so we – and that, it just sort of naturally evolved. And I think it really evolved less it is, it's less through us than through the characters. Okay. You know, what, my job a lot of the times is to get the characters talking to each other. Keith has the plot set up. You know, he's got some really rude, basic dialogue there, a couple of gags here and there. And, and you know, Keith's plots are like rock solid. You don't have to worry about the plots. You know, everything is there. And my job is to get the characters talking to each other and getting them to come alive on the page. And once they start talking, just as it is with with people in real life, 
chemistry evolves between the characters, and then we follow them. We follow the chemistry. Beetle and Booster, we didn't sit down and go, hmm, we'll make them the core of the book, and their friendship is going to be blah, 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 blah. That happened on the page. These guys started, you know, there was a scene with the two of them together, and we got them talking, and, wow, this is great. And then I would do something, and Keith would pick up on it, and Keith would do something, and I would pick up on it, and that's how it would evolve, you know? And I've also often said the great thing about working with Keith is there's no ego there. So that I had all the room. I've dialogue stuff for people in the past where they're very uptight and they're, they've got very tight margins about what I can and what I can't do. And if I go over that line, they're going to probably come in and change that. You know, hmm. um, with Keith, it was like I could take the story anywhere I wanted. I could have these guys start to blather and blather for pages, as you see when you look at the book, how many dialogue balloons are on a page. Um, <laughs> and, and I could introduce new plot lines and, you know, all kinds of things could happen through the dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. and, and Keith, rather than going, what have you done to my plot, went, would pick up and go, that's really cool. And he would build on it the next thing. And then he would do 20 things that that surprised me. You know, I, we, Keith and I will talk about the plot to something and I think it's all nailed down. Then he goes off and does whatever the hell he wants, you know, <laughs> creates something brilliant, tosses it to me and I do what I want and then toss it to him, you know. And and that's that's how that worked. You know, that's how it worked. And then we had Andy in the middle who if I ran on too much, he knew how to he knew how to slice and dice dialogue better than anybody. He knew who how to to grab Keith by the collar when Keith was leaping off the edge of a cliff, you know. <laughs> and and so, you know, he was the glue that held it together. And then we were lucky enough to get Kevin. Right. Who had done practically nothing at that point in his career. Maybe he had he'd had one published job before that. Um, um and who was the absolute perfect person for the book because his whole thing was character interaction, reactions, facial expressions, you know, mm-hmm. which sold the humanity and the and the humor, you know, we talk about the humor, but the humor really was a doorway into the humanity of the characters. Those people were very, very real to me because of the humor. I uh because they were like people that I knew. They I always say they were like, you know, when I was uh twenty years old in Brooklyn hanging out on a Saturday night with my friends and everybody, you know, just throwing jokes back and forth and yep humiliating each other and having a good time, you know? Well, I, I often say when I'm talking about the series is that is the humor is what made them real. And then it makes things like when um, something horrific happens, like when Beetle got brainwashed or whatever, it hurts that much more because you care yeah. about these as, as characters, as people, not just as guys in tights running around. Exactly. And, you know, the truth is in life, even in the darkest times and sometimes especially in the darkest times, we turn to humor. Yeah. It's just who we are as people. And, uh, and so, yeah, so the, the book, you know, we, like I said, we didn't set out to do, let's do funny superhero adventures. It just, it just evolved naturally. You've alluded to the process a little bit already, but just curious, I know there's a very specific structure that you guys would follow in plotting out an issue between the way it would go between Keith to you to Kevin to Andy and all that. What, how did that exactly work? Well, you know, Keith would, would, would work the plots out with, with Andy. They would discuss the plot. And as I said, you know, Andy's job was to Keith left to his own will, will he'll leap off the edge of the world and then sail to the other side of the universe and, and devour <laughs> a few planets along the way. You know, and Andy's job was to, to, to take it. I often say that Keith is like the Jack Kirby of our generation, of my generation. Hmm. He's just such a massive creative force. He really, really is. He's just, uh, I, I, I always come back to this and bear with me when my kids were little. Uh, I think it was my son had it was like a little bubble bear. Mm-hmm. It was plastic bear. You'd press his belly. The head would pop up and bubbles would come out. You know? 
And I hope for some reason that's what I think when I think of Keith. It's like <laughs> you squeeze his belly, his head pops up, and ideas come out, you know? And and if you don't like those ideas, he's not attached to them. Squeeze his belly again. Ten more ideas will come out. <laughs> he's, he's just immensely creative, you know. And, and Andy's job was sort of to 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 rein in that creativity a little bit and 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 focus it a little bit more, you know. Okay. So then, and Keith would draw the plots, which is what he still does. Uh, there was a period in between. Uh, when we were working on maybe I can't believe it's it's not the Justice League or one of those books where he was writing them out, but for the most part he draws them out like little mini comics, which is perfect because Keith's layouts. When Keith does layouts, it's better than ninety percent of the art that you see in comics anywhere. You know what I mean? Wow. It's okay. just so simple, so direct, so clear. He tells a story the way that Kirby told a story with absolute clarity. You know, he dropped a little mini comic. It would come to me, and. 90% of the time, um, I didn't even know what the plot was going to be till it's, in those days. You know, the, as we went on to work together over the years, we discussed things a lot more. But in the early days, you know, it was a machine. Mm-hmm. We had to do a cranking out Justice League and Justice League Europe and Justice League Quarterly. And I was writing, you know, Justice League miniseries and, and all this other stuff, you know. So the plot would show up and I would see it often for the first time. And I would often just write the first thing that came into my head. You know, it's been, <laughs> I, I wrote very, very quickly because the nature of the book, the nature of the conversations of the back and forth, you know, uh, it was very spontaneous. So I would do that. And if I had a question about what the hell's going on here, I'd call Andy and he'd say, oh, this is this and that's that. Because, you know, sometimes we'd be doing a crossover and I'd have no idea what's going on. Right. So I'd call up and go, so could you tell me what this crossover is about before I write the script? You know, um, <laughs> what the hell's a manhunter? You know, right, right, right. What's a manhunter? <laughs> and uh and and so i would just you know do what i was saying before i just let the characters talk and play with them and build on that and you know if, if andy thought there was too much he would slice and dice the fat off of it and and off it would go and and depending upon where we were in the deadline cycle sometimes what what kevin would get would be keith's plot and my script Mm-hmm. Sometimes there was time for Kevin to draw from the plot, so I would actually have Kevin's art. Oh, but it, okay. it really depended. You know, in general, and certainly these days, ninety percent of the time, uh, I prefer to just have Keith's plot. I write the script so that the artist has Keith's plot and the script. They know what the dialogue is going to be beforehand, because I know Kevin is so so likes to match the dialogue to the facial expressions, especially as we kept working together on other projects over the years and other mm-hmm. justice projects. That, you know, sometimes he would draw the page one way and then there would be like 20 other jokes in there. And he, well, if I knew what that was going to be, I could have changed the art this way or that way. So, you know, we, we made an effort to get get the script and the plot together to him. But in the early days, and again, we're on a freight train and the book has to come out. So it depended, I think, month by month, whether I was dialoguing just from Keith's um, plot or 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 from the artwork as well. Gotcha. Well, speaking of plotting and things like that, you had several characters in the book that were removed you know, like Captain Marvel or Black Canary, they were removed because of other obligations to other titles. Now, right. All the characters that were taken away from you, which character was the toughest to lose, and were there any plans for that character you couldn't follow through with? You know who I really liked in the early part uh, of the book was Captain Marvel yeah. because of the 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 innocence. I don't think he'd he'd been played as a kid in a grown up body before because it used to be he'd say Shazam and he was an adult, you know. Right. And we really, we really went for the, the gosh was, oh my God, I'm a 10 year old kid and I'm a superhero, you know? <laughs> um, and, and it was a great character to play off the, the other characters. I mean, Captain Marvel playing off Guy Gardner, you know, it was just perfect. Do I remember if we had any big plans for him? I couldn't tell you, but I just know that, that I personally really, really had a lot of fun with that character. 
and didn't was not that happy when he left. But you know, we had plenty of other characters, and on we went. A lot of the folks that write in feedback for this show, they talk a lot about uh, characters that were taken away. I mean, that that comes up often, especially because we're still in the first year of the book right now. But right. one of the ones that comes up a lot is Doctor Fate. Now, I have a question for you about this one. Okay. Doctor Fate's obviously pulled from the JLI. I get why the other characters were pulled. This one, though, if I understood right, you had the creative control of Dr. Fate, so it sounds like you did this one to yourself. You know, I couldn't tell you. I mean, this is probably around the same time, right? When yeah. I, I did, Keith, uh, Keith and I did a Dr. Fate miniseries, mm-hmm. and I was doing Dr. Fate ongoing. I think, though, there was a gap between the miniseries and the ongoing. Yeah, there was uh, several the months. The miniseries was like 87, and maybe I did the, the monthly in 89. Okay. So it's very possible that the decision to pull Dr. Fate out was not mine. I was the last one to know about the things and the reason, <laughs> some, you know, somebody in some other editorial office would say, you can't use that. And he'd tell Andy. And the other thing Andy was really great uh, with was protecting us. Mm. I'm sure there were a lot more people who were like really freaked out about their characters ending up in our book and in their minds being turned into a joke. You know what I mean? Right. Andy did not tell us every time someone complained or did this or did that. He just left us alone to create, and he did what a good editor does, and he protected his creative team, you know? So I honestly cannot tell you why Dr. Fate disappeared. Gotcha. Uh, I have no idea. But Fate did – you know, after I worked on the, the monthly for a while and, and we had the uh, the female Dr. Fate and all that, mm-hmm. but Fate showed up again uh, in the book, and we used uh, her and yep. him and whatever form he was in. That <laughs> By the way, I think you owe me an apology because I read your Dr. Fate ongoing, the first 24 issues there. Mm-hmm. And I blubbered like a baby in that thing several times. It was an emotional roller coaster for me in my you know late teen years. So I just you know because of my man tears, I, I feel like you uh, you owe me an apology. I know I don't because that's the whole point. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's to pull some emotion out of you. So I, I'm sorry. I will not apologize. <laughs> I will publicly not apologize. I have to say that's 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 a series. It's one. Of, I think it's one of the best things I've ever done. And I think most people don't even know it exists. But I would love to have them take the miniseries that I did with Keith and then the 24 issues that I did with Sean McManus and collect that all together because that's a, that's a run that I'm incredibly proud of. It was amazing. And I love Sean McManus's everything he does, but I think that was the, some of the best art he's ever turned out. It was just – that whole yeah. series was amazing. He was, he was another one of those artists where he gave you everything you asked for and more, you know? I even have a letter published shortly after your final issue, and it was uh, just basically says, thank you. That's all the letter said. It was uh, very moving. Really, really enjoyed that run. Oh, thank you. Thank you. DC, if you're listening, collect it. Yeah, exactly. So so you, we were talking about pushback. So you said Andy protected you for most of it. Now, what about a character like Batman? I mean, you know, come 1989, there wasn't much interest in that character anymore. So I imagine you didn't get any complaints about that. Oh, it wasn't, wait, it wasn't 89 when the Batman movie came yeah, out? Yeah, exactly. That's where I'm going with that. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, being, you're being facetious, eh? Sorry. Uh, that's okay. It, those of us who walk palely in your, in your footsteps and try and shadow your humor. <laughs> um, you know what? I don't remember. Uh, and now, again. It could be that Denny O'Neill was in Andy's office every day going, what are you doing? Although <laughs> Denny is a very laid back guy, so I don't know if, if he would have. I don't think we would have had uh, Batman for as long as we did if Denny wasn't happy with it. Okay. Um, another, another, by the way, another really great editor and one of the smartest people that ever worked in comics, uh, Denny O'Neill. So, no, I don't remember I, I, if there was any if there were any problems. I never heard about it. And Batman worked so beautifully in the book because he was the one that wasn't making jokes. Right. It was Batman. Although every once in a while – he would very subtly make one, and then it would completely baffle the rest of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, was that a joke? Wait, maybe it wasn't a joke, but it could have been a joke, you know? 
and, and he, he played off beautifully there. He really did. He, he's a standout. Everyone loves his portrayal in there because it just it, he's the oddball that doesn't fit, but that's exactly why he belongs there. So. Yes, and I always felt like he loved being there. He uh-huh. loved every second of it. He could never show it. He would never admit it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He completely loved every minute of being with these morons. You know. <laughs> I always think back to uh, one of the uh, Super Buddies era miniseries you guys did, where yeah. you know it's during the when JLI was a or JLA, I'm sorry, was it was a major property, and you know Batman and Martian Manhunter are watching on the monitor what the Super Buddies are doing, and they're talking right. about how they can't go interfere. And Batman just leaves them a cookie. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and you know Martian Manhunter fulfilled that role uh, even in a lot of ways even better than uh, Batman did because at a certain point he was our character to do with as we pleased, you know. But he was he was he was. He became the parent in the book. And uh, another character that I, you know, there's so many of the characters in that book that I love, and I love that character. And I also around the same time got to do a, a Martian Manhunter miniseries with Mark Badger. That's another one that I think uh, really, really I'm proud of, and I would love to see DC collect that one too. Especially, you know, Martian Manhunter is on TV every week. Why are they not putting out, you know, any Martian Manhunter stories that were done and, and, and putting out collections? You know, I don't understand it. I know. There's, there's, a lot of different series. They just seem like they'd be no-brainers, even if they just went to a digital release for a trade yeah. or something. Anything. Yeah. So, all right, let, you talked about some favorites. Let, let's play Who's Your Favorite Child? Favorite JLI members. Give me, like, two or three. Well, Beal and Booster, for sure. Okay. Uh, because, you know, in so many ways, they're the heart and soul of the book. And if I had to pick one of those two, I'd go with Beetle because I think somehow I, I connected more to him. But I love them both, you know, and I love the banter. And and I, and I love that we that we continued to play with them, you know. And later on, when we got to uh, a formerly known as the Justice League, and, and uh, I think it was, was, was it Beetle who decided he was going to be mature now and he wasn't yes. going to be silly, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, Booster is like was was the was the dummy on the team. You know what I mean? And then he kind of woke up. Like, well, I'm not a player. I'm not stupid. I mean, I'm just, they, they, they continue they, they continue to evolve and right right to the point where we pulled them into Justice League 3001. You know, we got to continue to play yes. with them for so many years. Uh, so I love those characters. Martian Manhunter, I adore. You know, I would write a Martian Manhunter book tomorrow if anyone asked. <laughs> And Nort, mm. the greatest character in the history of comic books. Of course. Um, you my, know, my daughter um, would agree with you. <laughs> you know, th- I, I, those are probably my absolute favorites. You know, Guy was always fun, especially the relationship between them. Then we had all these relationships. There was Beetle and Booster. There was Fire and Ice. There was Guy and Ice. There was Max and Oberon. There were all yeah. these, like, individual dynamics, you know, between these little subgroups of characters that then played into the bigger groups of characters, you know? It was it was so much fun because of the personalities, because of the people. It was a people book first and foremost. Keith always said that you know he thought the best way to do um, Justice League as a TV show. He harkened back to if you met there was an old sitcom called Barney Miller. It was a cop oh, yeah. show, absolutely. But the, whole, but the whole thing took place in the police station. You right. didn't see them out there chasing the bad guys. They might bring the bad guys in, but it was really about the workplace. And Keith always thought that JLI would be a great workplace comedy. You know. Just the whole thing takes place in their headquarters, and you know they come back from the battle, or they drag Despero in, or whatever, you know, um, which would be an interesting way to go with that. I, I always heard it referred to as a workplace comedy. I didn't know that Barney Miller was part of the uh, the impetus of that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, here's an ultra nerd question, and maybe this one's for Andy. The series starts off as Justice League, then it becomes Justice League International, then right. it becomes Justice League America, which, by the way, this is just an obsessive fanboy's nightmare trying to catalog this thing. Was the, was the series name change, was that planned from the beginning? Was that, did that come later? No, no, no. We plan? Oh, come now. <laughs> 
You know, the evolution into into Justice League International, again, that happens naturally as the book went along. And then when the book was such a big hit that they decided to spin it off into Justice League Europe. Mm-hmm. And we decided the, or I, I'm sure I didn't decide. I'm sure, you know, Andy or Andy and Keith or somebody else decided <laughs> that we would rebrand that one as Justice League America. So we had that nice contrast with America and Europe, you know. Right. But none of this was like we didn't have any grand plan. We never have a grand plan. We're always making it up as we go along. That was the fun of it for me was that we were always always making it up as we went along. So go back in time with me now to 1989, right? Okay. You've been doing the series for about two years and yeah. you were writing four monthly Justice League related comics. You mentioned it earlier. Justice League America, Justice League yeah. Europe, Mr. Miracle and Dr. Fate, all four coming out the same month. My question right. for you are, what were you thinking and how did you possibly manage that? You know, you do, you just do it. <laughs> you just do it. And if the, and if, and if it's fun, it's, it's, you know, it's not a problem. It's really, really not. And, you know, first of all, the, the, the freelancer rule number one is you say yes. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, there's one month where you're suddenly you're juggling four, you know, four monthly issues and an annual and a mini series or whatever it is. And then, you know, six months later, you might have no work. You never know as a freelancer. So there's that, that all freelancers live with that. And, you know, it's just the truth. So unless it's so overwhelming that you think you can't do a good job, you say yes. Okay. Um, and, you know, at that point, those characters were just my world, you know, and and I was also probably at the same time doing stuff for Vertigo as well. Um, probably true. You know, I was uh, getting my, my superhero uh, thing out of the way with those characters. And then I did a, a whole series of things for Vertigo in the same, the same period of time. You do it because it's fun. You do it because you love it. And uh, if at any point I, w- I wouldn't be able to do it, which is at a certain point I got off Justice League Europe because probably it was one book too many or one – not that it was one book too many. It was a little too much Justice League. Yeah, okay. Were also, don't forget there was also Justice League Quarterly, which had, what, 80-page yep. stories sometimes, right. you know, and, and miniseries like Martian Manhunter and, you know, uh, and, and other things. There was a lot going on there. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. And it was a great it was a great era and a great period of time to be working in the business. Well, the day this interview comes out, it will mark the thirtieth anniversary of the release of Justice League number one, February fifth, nineteen eighty seven. So first mm-hmm. off, congratulations and happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing that I'm only thirty five. You know, it's I, I'm astounded. You don't look a day over twenty five. Uh, <laughs> now you've written the JLI during their obviously their comic book heyday, which is what we've been talking about. Yeah. You returned for the Super Buddies era, you know, with those right. series. You've reimagined the characters for Justice League three thousand and three thousand one, which by the way, I love. And you've even written the JLI for television. Yeah. Now, looking back through the lens of time, now what do you think about those early issues of JLI now? And which era or stories do you feel like where you guys were at your personal best? Oh, that's really interesting. That's interesting. You know, it's it's hard to be objective about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go back and I read the old stuff, I, what I really like to see is the evolution. Because if you look at the early issues, it was an adventure comic with a little bit of humor. Yeah. And I think it's, at a certain point it shifted into a humor comic with some adventure. You know? <laughs> Uh, and then we would flip back again because what we always like to do is flip things around, get you laughing, and then suddenly turn the page and have some horrible thing happen, you know? Right. right. Uh, so, so you know, the, the early issues, you see it's an evolution. Look at Kevin's art then and look at Kevin's art now. Well, it was great then, but look at what he's capable of doing now, and it's like off the charts, you know? Right. I think – in some ways, what I really enjoyed the most was formerly known as the Justice League. Okay. Because you have to understand, we like I said, this was a this was a well-oiled machine, a bunch of freelancers, you know, doing their best, and then we did it for five years, and then it was over. Mm-hmm. We didn't work together again for ten years. Wow. 
And I, I'm sure if you spoke to any of us in that 10-year gap, we all would have said, hey, that was fun. I loved working with those guys. But we didn't necessarily think that what we did or what we had was anything, you know, super special. Okay. It was not until we got back together to work on formerly known as Justice League that we all kind of went, wow, there's something here. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> you know, it's like if you're in a band, the band breaks up, and then suddenly you get back together, and you start to play, and that chemistry starts to happen, and, and it's really astonishing. I was I was actually terrified a little bit, a little terrified, not wildly terrified going into that project, because I kept thinking of those bad TV reunion movies, you know? <laughs> You know, return to Mayberry or right. Mary Rhoda or whatever, you know, right. it's like, what if we get back together and this thing really sucks, you know, and we just, you know, and within like three pages, everything just clicked again, you know, mm -hmm. and we had all evolved in our skill levels in those 10 years, you know, uh, Kevin was a much better artist. I hope I was much better with dialogue. You know, Keith had just continued to grow. And we just had it. We, it just it just clicked, and we had it. And we all kind of went. We need to keep doing this, you know. You know, along with that, we also worked with uh, Keith and Kevin on for a short time on Metal Man, right? Which which uh, a lot of people probably don't even know that we did, but I, it, it may be one of my single favorite things we've ever done. I, I think that book really? is so so suited to what we could do that I could have done that for five years as well, you know. Yeah. We went to Marvel and we did the Defenders together. And of course, Keith and I have worked on so many things together, you know, Hero Squared, and now we're doing Scooby and Justice League 3000 and 3001. And I mean, so it just, it just continues to grow. But I guess in terms of the Justice League stuff, I think it was the magic of coming back together for I can't believe it's not the Justice League. Oh, no, no, no. Formerly known as Justice League. I got them mixed up in my head. Formerly known. And then on top of that, we won an Eisner for it. So I know. That, you know, it was like, that was like, we, we, what, we won a what? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think the combination of obviously the time passing and, as you mentioned, everyone's skill and, and probably stories building up and everything, I think history also helped you a bit there because somewhere around, I don't know, 1997 or so, when, when Grant yeah. Morrison's JLA was huge, it's like yeah. the world turned on JLI for a while. They were like, oh, that's the funny Justice League. We don't need that anymore. We need the JLA, you know, and, right, and right, that was right. big and splashy for a few years. And then everyone kind of turned, you know, came back around shortly before, uh, formerly known as Justice League and kind of went, oh, wait a minute. No, those were great comics. They were funny, sure, but there's a lot more going on. And so I think time helps you guys as well. And uh, yeah. yeah. And then there was a period after that where they sort of turned on us again and they started like, uh, you know, Max Lord became a, a bad guy and Blue Beetle's brains out and all. Blue Beetle's brains. <laughs> that little pun there, I just realized. Um, <laughs> Blue Beetle's brains out, and you know, all, all, suddenly it seemed like every week they would take something that we'd done and undo it and make it grim, you know. Right. Um, and then that sort of rebalanced itself again, you know. But yeah, the, the, I think the book has just continued to grow over the years, and it's a nice thing. It's a nice thing to know that those stories are still out there and that people are still discovering them for the first time and enjoying them, and that we get to keep working together, which is really great. I'm hoping that sometime this year, uh, the three of us, me, Keith, and Kevin, can get together and do something new, because it's been a while. I, that was going to be my next question. So that it, it's hopes right now or plans? Uh, let's call it hopes. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, you mentioned as far as uh, the, the stuff with Maxwell Lord and, and Blue Beetle and things like that. Uh, folks, if you haven't read Justice League 3000 or 3001, I preach about this all the time. Not only is it a phenomenal series in and of its own, not only does it flip itself constantly so you don't know what to expect one month or the next, there is a, a period of time there that really feels like they just took the, the Super Buddies, and tell me if I'm wrong here, uh, but it feels like you took the Super Buddies continuity, and then everything else DC did to sort of darken those characters, you said, eh, we're just going to ignore that and do right. our own story. Because what we decided was we existed in our own continuity. We had nothing to do with, you know, we were in like, you know, universe, blah, ha, ha, over there in the corner. <laughs> And we were picking up from where we left off. So if Beetle and Booster showed up or if Fire and Ice showed up, 
they're the beetle and booster and fire ice that we left behind and all that stuff in between never happened. Yeah. Such a great And that was, that was the fun of it, you know? And then that, that, yeah, you're right. One of the things I enjoyed about that book, especially talk about the spontaneity of Keith's plotting, you know, we would talk about something and then he would just go off and every month he was like ideas were flying out of his head. And sometimes we would discard one plot line because we were off in the next one, but it was always surprising. There was always something interesting going on in that book. And then we, you know, toward, toward the end, we, we flipped the whole thing and we ended up with an all female team. Right. Right. And, and I have to say one of my great disappointments is that, we essentially relaunched the book without a number one by changing it to an all female team, and there was absolutely no promotion. Oh. You know, there wasn't an ad, there wasn't a mention, there was nothing out there. You know, the, I think they started promoting it after we'd been canceled or something. Jeez. Oh, um, you know, I, I think that book could have run for a really, really long time. We had a lot of a lot of big plans for that book, but that's you know that's life in the freelance lane, as I call it. You just. <laughs> You know, they're, they're, things get canceled. It just happens, and it doesn't matter how much you're in love with the project. They get canceled, and you you kind of like bang your head against the wall, and you weep and you wail, and you dust yourself off and go create something else. Yeah, that's what you do. Rather than focus on that disappointment, I focus on the fact that we we ran for two years and had a really really great time, and we got to work with Howard Porter and and Scott Collins, and you know it was really it was really a fun book. And that seemed to be sort of a stepping stone over to the Scooby Doo Apocalypse book, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we, 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 me, uh, Keith, and Howard jumped right over to Scooby Apocalypse. That's right. That seems to be doing really well. I mean, they've got lots of these Hanna Barbera books, but that always seems to be the one that they're using as the uh, flagpole in the promotions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's because it's it's the most well known property. You know, it's okay. it's sort of the the pop cultural touchstone, if you will. You mm-hmm. know, everybody. Everybody knows Scooby. What's funny for me is that I didn't, I really, you know, everyone knows that Scooby-Doo exists. You know, you could tell what Scooby-Doo and I could tell you what it is, but I never had any connection to Scooby-Doo whatsoever. You know, I didn't really watch the cartoons. Uh, I, you know, I was aware that they were, even my kids didn't watch the cartoons. Oh, wow. Um, and then, uh, whatever it was, a year, year and a half ago, because I write a lot of animation, I, I got involved writing for Be Cool Scooby-Doo, mm-hmm. which is a really, really, really well done show, which Cartoon Network, once again, it's there's all these episodes that are complete and it's off the air and you never know when things are – Cartoon Network just shuffles things around like in baffling ways. But anyway, that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like my schooling in Scooby-Doo, you know, worked okay. with a – a wonderful guy named John Barry who was the showrunner on that show. Really smart, really funny, great guy. And so I was like, I went to Scooby University <laughs> and learned about one of the hardest shows to write for because you have to you have to actually really construct a mystery, mm-hmm. and then you have to serve each of the serve each of the characters and have a little arc for them of growth in the issue, you know. And then it was a very tight little uh, piece of uh, of a mechanism there, you know. I'm, I'm, my words are not coming out correctly, but you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It was like a little uh, like the insides of a clock. You had to get everything right to make that show work. But it was it was an education. Then in the middle of all that. You know, Keith calls up one day and says, hey, you want to do Scooby Apocalypse with me? And it's like, all of a sudden, I'm up to my neck in Scooby-Doo <laughs> after never, you know, never giving Scooby-Doo a second thought in my life. And I have to say, I've had, you know, I've had a great time. The thing, though, with working with Keith is, if you know, I always say, and it's not a joke, and Scooby proves it. If Keith called me up and said, hey, let's do Millie the Model, I'd go, sure, because <laughs> the fun is in the collaboration. Right. The What we're working on is secondary because what we have together, I think we could take any property and turn it into something fun. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll always say yes when Keith calls and says, well, what if we do this? Sure. Why not? Okay. 
so Scooby has been tremendous fun, really tremendous fun. We're just kind of coming to the end of the first year and making plans for year two, and we've had a great time. We've had a really, really great time. That's awesome. And as, uh, as Shaggy is my namesake, uh, just say thank you again. Yeah, and that, that's the character in the book that I totally love. I mean, I love them all, but I really, really love Shaggy. <laughs> well, he's got that sort of uh, style, and, and he has a fit. I mean, he, he would fit in the JLI, honestly. You know, hanging yeah, out he of the... actually would. You know, yeah. it could be Shaggy and Nort instead of Shaggy and Scooby, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's there's an idea for a parallel universe comic. There's a crossover, yeah. All right, Mark. On our show, each episode, we do something called... Pwahaha Award. It's an award we give out each month for the funniest moment in a, in a particular issue. But this isn't just any Pwahaha Award. I'm asking you, and I know this is a big ask, but I'm asking you to select one moment from all your JLI stories to earn a very special Lifetime Achievement Pwahaha Award. What moment in those comics would you award that to? Okay, I'll give the Wahaha Award to the first time that we said Wahaha. Issue, issue number eight. There we go. In Paris. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, because that has been what those books are identified with. Okay. You know, we'll call it the Wahaha Justice League. We didn't set out to do that. Now, here's another thing. Keith and I argue about who came up with that. Mm -hmm. Neither one has any clue. My memory is that Keith had one, you know, had one character in that issue say Wahaha when he laughed. Mm -hmm. And something about that, like, rooted in my brain. So, as I said before, what I do is I take these things and I beat it into the ground. <laughs> and so Wahaha became our go-to laugh. Right. Keith thinks that I put it in first and that he picked up on it. So uh, neither one of us knows, which is kind of great. So we can leave it out in the realm of mystery. You know, as Keith said, he could go dig out the because he has the old plots somewhere. He mm -hmm. could dig out the plot and find out, but he doesn't want to know. You know, he likes the idea that neither one of us knows. But so we have so so been identified with the, with those phrases. You know, I, I imagine one day, you know, uh, on our graves, it'll be boah. <laughs> <laughs> Then again, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know if I want that. Uh, but um, but I think that that since that so identifies this particular brand of the Justice League, I think that gets the Bwahaha Award. That is, uh, I think, rightfully earned. Rightfully earned. So for those of you keeping track at home, yes, that's issue number eight, and it's when uh, Beetle and Booster are hitting on Catherine Colbert, and Beetle uh, Booster goes down in flames, and Beetle can't stop laughing about it. So right, right, and then I, it would be interesting to track it from issue to issue to see how Bwahaha picked up momentum to the point where it became, like, you know, a foundation of the book, you know? Yeah, I'll, we'll start watching for that in our issues. We're not too far off when issue eight, uh, when we talked about it, so I'll look for that. So maybe you could write a dissertation on the evolution oh, of Bwahaha. <laughs> There's a reason I do podcasts instead of writing things. Uh, right. <laughs> so going from laughter to otherwise, you, you've written okay. some very deeply spiritual work, you know, uh, Dr. Fate, The Spectre, Seekers into Mystery, even your 1997 musical album, How Many Lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Now, spiritual beliefs are one of those topics, like politics, that can be kind of challenging to discuss because you just don't know how people are going to react. Now, are yeah. you nervous when you put your spiritual beliefs out there, or is it rewarding? And um, how do, as a writer, how do you switch gears from bwahaha to you know discussing Indian philosophies, things like that? Yeah, you know, I'm never nervous about it. You know, okay. people will receive it how they receive it, and I, I, I'm not trying to convince or convert anybody. You know, I'm just. As a writer, you go to your passions, you go to, you go to your deepest beliefs. I mean, even if, probably if you sorted through Justice League with a different lens, you could find uh, my beliefs and Keith's beliefs, you know, intertwining and working their way through there, even though it seems like it's just sort of a lighthearted uh, escapade. You know, a writer can't help but pour themselves into their work. And then the more personal the work gets, the more blatant that becomes. 
But every writer has themes that they that they return to, philosophies that they return to, ideas that they return to, you know. And to me, the essence of being a writer, uh, I, I tell my, my 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 students in my classes, it's really it's about you have to take a knife, you need to cut into your chest, and you need to bleed on the pages. You mm. need to put the deepest part of yourselves. You need to be able to put on the page things that sometimes that you wouldn't even tell to your friend, but you'll put it on the page. You know, Brooklyn Dreams that way was like really like a tightrope for me. There were times I was writing it. The actual writing was easy mm-hmm. because the stories of my life that I knew, you know, and could tell very easily. But the fact that I was putting some of these things down on the page was what was like, whoa, I'm up here on this tightrope and it's a little scary here, you know? Mm. But that's what writing should be. That's what writing should be. You know, it's funny, even even with the Justice League, you know, Andy Helfer had a, had a joke, and I hope he was joking. He said, you know, anybody, anybody could do what you do on this book. You're the only one that has the balls to put it on the paper, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a measure of truth in that for all writing. You know, the difference between someone who's going to do this for a living and someone who won't. The other person may even have the skill. But do you have the courage to put it on the page? So, yes, I, I will share I will share my spiritual perspectives because I'm writing about life. And, I, you know, the same way that I, that I write, I like to get into the characters in a deeply psychological way because these things are important. These are the things that obsess and interest me. And I'm going to write about what obsesses and interests me. And if people respond to it, all the better. And if they don't, you know, that's, that's their choice with anything. You know, there are people that don't like uh, JLI. They, they don't like this funny stuff. So, you know, you know, you can't control how people are going to receive things. At the same time, like I said, the goal is never to preach, convert, or anything like that, but just to share mm-hmm. uh, what I'm feeling. And, you know, our, our, our popular culture can get very dark sometimes, you know? And then when you get into these fantasy and comics, and I always say it's like, well, you know, we all see all these journeys to hell. The characters are always going to hell, and, and, and you go to the in movies and they do spiritual stories, but you're always, they're always fighting demons or whatever. You know, like, where's God in all this? You know, uh, mm. how come we're comfortable talking about the devil, but we can't talk about God in some form, you know? How can we, and, and, and so we can, we're, we're willing to leave people sort of burning in the fires of hell fighting with demons, but we don't want to leave them hope in the light, you know? And, and, and the ultimate goal for anything that I do is I always say I'm, I'm willing to go into the dark and crawl through the tunnel and crawl through glass, but I want to, with a story, my goal is to come out the other side into the light. I want to give people hope, you know? Mm-hmm. And I could go on and on about that, but we don't have to. As for how to switch gears, you know what? It's fairly effortless for me. It just it just is. It's a different – every story is different. You know, uh, writing a Spider-Man story, you know, it's a very psychologically driven superhero story versus doing Seekers into the Mystery, which I have to plug. The new Seekers into the Mystery collection just came out today. It's all 15 issues of Seekers collected for the first time. It's massive, and I'm so happy to finally see it out there. Oh, that's but great. To go from, to go from that – uh, Spider-Man to Seekers uh, to Justice League, each story determines the tone, you know, <clears throat> it's all me, it's all different aspects of me, you know, and it, and the variety is what makes it fun to be able to do that, to write autobiography, to write uh, kid-friendly projects. I just had, you know, we just finished up the second miniseries at IDW of The Adventures of Augusta Wind, which is a kid-friendly series. The collection will be out in the spring. One awesome. of the best, one of the best things I've ever done, as far as I'm concerned. But that's again a different flavor, a different frame than to jump off and do animation or, or, or write a novel or, or work on a screenplay. If you're a writer, you need that variety. If I had only just done superheroes all these years, I think I would have jumped out a window years and years ago. <laughs> Not that I don't love them. Obviously, I couldn't still be doing it if I didn't love them. But it's the variety. It was the being able to, you know, even when I was under contract at Marvel, I had a clause in my contract that I could still write for Vertigo. Oh, because okay. I needed to have that that contrast. I needed to be able to jump and do something different, something more personal, you know. So yeah, the the, the flipping back and forth is pretty easy. 
Well, speaking of those deeply personal projects, I mean, a lot of folks know you for your superhero work, your Spider-Man, your Captain America, your Justice League, and different things like that. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff we sort of touched on. You know, we've mentioned Brooklyn Dreams. We've mentioned Seekers into Mystery, things like that. What are, you know, I wanted you to have a second to just talk to the people and tell them some of the stuff you've done might be off the beaten path, but they, that you feel really strongly about and that they should check out. Right. Well, I, I mentioned Seekers, which just came out literally, you know, as we're recording today, although by the time this plays, it'll be out for a couple of weeks. Who's releasing that, by the way? Who's publishing it's, it this time? It's Dover Books. Dover Books, okay. Dover Books has started a graphic novel line. They're starting by collecting some things that have never been collected before. Seekers, we've got art by John J. Muth, mm. Michael Zuli, Jill Thompson, Glenn Barr, who I worked on with, uh, worked on Brooklyn Dreams with. Just phenomenal artwork, and it's, it's a very odd, deeply personal, very magical story in its weird way, and uh, one of my favorite projects ever. And a few months back, IDW brought out a new edition of, a, of another old Vertigo series of mine called The Last One, mm-hmm. and a really nice hardcover edition. You know, this is, this is the project that started this all for me, you know, years ago was Moonshadow. That was the first one where I stepped outside those superhero universes. Right. And, and found my voice as a writer. And it still remains one of my favorite things that I've ever done. And we're, 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 we're hard at work trying to get a new edition of Moonshadow out as well. I think, wasn't that the, uh, first painted comic book or something? Yes. Like? Mm-hmm. The first yeah. American comic that was fully painted. John J. Muth. Brilliant, <sighs> beautiful art. Yeah, so uh, there's a whole you know whole string of those, and you know Brooklyn Dreams is one of my all-time favorite projects. I mentioned a beautiful new hardcover edition from uh, uh, IDW, and I'm sure there are many that I'm forgetting. I did a bunch of pro- pro- also Dover Books put out another project called Mercy, mm. which was a real project. They put that out this past, about a year ago. Uh, that I did with Paul Johnson in a really, really nice edition with all kinds of extras in the back. And um, and coming out later this year, it's great to get this work back. Because, you know, the, it's the nature of the beast that work goes out of print. Right. And so we're working on getting Moonshadow out. Um, Boom Studios will be putting out a beautiful new edition of The Stardust Kid, which I did with Mike Plug. Mike Plug and I did Abadazad together and The Stardust Kid, two of my favorite, favorite projects ever. Right. And then to bring it back to, to JLI, uh, one of the best projects Keith and I ever did was for Boom, which is called Hero Squared. Love it. Which, you know, and we're putting out a Hero Squared Omnibus edition next summer. Oh! Which will have every Hero Squared story and all the Planetary Brigade stories with with scripts and plots and all kinds of fun stuff in the back, and it's going to be, I mean, gigantic. Oh, that's fantastic. All of it it in one giant edition. And, And the Stardust Kid edition will also have scripts and, and beautiful Mike Plug artwork in the back and hardcover and, and so a lot of wonderful things coming back out again and in terms of the newer stuff like I mentioned Augusta Wind that we have one Augusta Wind volume a hardcover that's already out We'll have the, the second volume collected in the spring, and Mike Cavallaro and I, who I worked with on another favorite project of mine called The Life and Times of Savior 28, mm-hmm. uh, did for IDW, which I also think is maybe the single best superhero story I've ever done. Oh. Um, we're starting a new project for IDW, but it's brand new, so I don't want to talk about it too much, but it'll be out probably the end of the summer. Okay, so we can start watching like the previous catalogs and stuff for that then under IDW? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. And as always, you know, I continue to write for animation and, and, and developing a, a live-action television show and doing lots of interesting stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, definitely keep us posted as that kind of stuff comes out. We'll share it out with the folks. Who, yeah. uh, now, we have a lot of writers and aspiring writers that are listening right now. now okay. One of the things you do is you do writing workshops. Yeah. And you've been hosting it through Creation Point. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I, I, unfortunately, I don't do them as much as I'd like to. It seems like maybe once a year it rolls around. Uh, okay. And if you, go to, if you go to my website, jmdmateus.com, I have a workshop section. So I'll always have information about when the next workshop is. And uh, hopefully I'll get to do one in the in the, in the the spring. But, you know, I, I, a couple of years back, I'd done an evening uh, uh, with Danny Fingeroth in the city. I think it was at the Museum of Comic Art where we just talked about – 
craft or mm-hmm. the art and craft of, of comics. And you realize after you've been doing this stuff for a while that you know a lot. I, I, as I'm talking, I'm realizing I didn't know that I knew that. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's a lot of skill uh, that you develop. There's a lot of insight that you develop. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to really share this with people? So I put together this workshop and we do an entire weekend. Uh, it's in upstate New York, but I've had people come from as far away as Mexico to take the class. Wow. So don't let the distance uh, get in the way. You know, you come, you spend a whole weekend and, and, and it's really immersive. It, you know, so we start on Friday night. We go all day Saturday. We go, uh, half a day on Sunday. And, uh, and it's really, really, uh, and usually a small group. We'd like to keep it like maybe, you know, six or eight people in a group. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's very intimate. And, and I really share, you know, 35 years of knowledge about what this is about and the creative process from both the practical side and from what the metaphysical side, because a good part of what we do is, uh, is, is really, I think, metaphysical and spiritual. And, and there's a whole other aspect to writing that, that comes from tapping into other dimensions and kind of channeling that through our imagination. So we get into very practical things like how do you format a script? How do you work with an editor? What All the practical questions you have, story structure, writing character, all those things. And also then we have fun going off into the into the far reaches of the universe with the metaphysics of writing as well. So it's a really fun class, and if I wasn't so lazy, I'd probably do them more. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those of you who are thinking about being writers, definitely go check out his website. And re- I was, I was, I'm not a writer. I that's again, that's why I talk for right. stuff. Uh, but reading that page, just the testimonials you had, the price point is very, very reasonable for what you're going to get from that project uh, or from that experience, folks. I couldn't recommend it enough. Well, thanks. And also, I want to mention that for people that, that can't come to workshops, I also do story consultation. You go to the same same area on my workshop, and I will work with someone one on one on their on their projects. You know, we do it through Skype and whatever, and and it's and it's really really fun working with people that way too, because it's very direct and very intimate. Check it out, and if it's something that interests you, send me an email, and we'll see what we can do. Fantastic. Well, really, one big thing left here, and this is going to be our lightning round, JM. Okay. So we're going to put. I don't know. I'm pretty slow. I don't know how good I am at moving at lightning speed here. Well, I'm sorry, sir. You're going to have to pull up your game. This okay. is how it's going to work. You're going to have about five seconds to answer each question. We're going to have a okay. clock going, and if you go over five seconds, I'll pretend like I care and let you keep talking anyway. But okay. here we go. Starting yeah. off, which of Spider-Man's villains is the biggest lovable loser? The kangaroo. <laughs> All right. What action figures are on display in your office right now? Oh gosh, uh, you know I, have, I tend to have characters that I've written. So Spider-Man is there, Doctor Fate is there, Batman, uh, Superman. I'm not in my office at the moment, so I can't see them all. <laughs> and, and then I also have a few others, like you know, John Lennon. I have a John Lennon figure and a Captain Kirk figure, but but mostly oh, I, I have a whole wall of JLI figures that, that DC sent me years ago. So nice. So they're all there as well. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Back in the day, who was the most fun to hang out with after hours from either the Marvel or DC offices? Oh, that's not a good question because then I mentioned one person. I'm going to insult 200 other people. <laughs> <laughs> I have to let me. I'll say one thing because I've, I've been lucky enough to work with lots of really, really great people who were not just uh, fellow professionals but friends over the years, which is why I can't really get into it. But since we're talking about Justice League. Mm-hmm. Helfer's office was 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 a real focal point uh, in those days, and and every couple of weeks, you know, especially if, if it was payday, you know, we would all gravitate, and Keith would be in the office, and I'd be in the office, and Kevin would be chained to a wall somewhere drawing, <laughs> and we'd hang out with Andy. I would go around and visit the other editors, and and 
And then we'd all end up back in Andy's office and spend an entire day just hanging out. And, you know, maybe, maybe we would go out to lunch, me and Keith and Andy or, or Kevin would come or whatever. But certainly in the JLI era, that was that was that was the hangout was was Andy's office. That sounds like an absolute blast and a real good job keeping that to five seconds, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you pronounce Colonel Ruman Hajavajavajavaj? How do you say that? Hajarfti. Hajarfti. Really? Never would have guessed that in a million years. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I happened to turn on uh, Netflix a random uh, Young Justice cartoon the other day, mm-hmm. and and he was in it. And oh, I was no like, way. Oh, he's in this? <laughs> <laughs> Bialya and, and, and Hajarfti were, were both in there. Well, I cannot so, promise I will pronounce it correctly on future episodes, but I will do hey, my best. Hey, you know what? I may not be pronouncing it correctly either. I'd have to look at it. It'll turn out that I'm, that I'm completely mispronouncing it, that the R, the R is someplace else in the name. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Do you personally own any superhero pajamas i do not all right putting that on the christmas list all right uh, <laughs> you're <finish>. not <laughs> <laughs> finish this sentence for me well writing the spider-man clone saga i was told that the one true spider-man was ben riley oh <gasps> really okay oh, I knew that, it. Was the, that was the plan from the beginning okay so they really were gonna uh, to get rid of peter and ben was gonna stay spider-man okay we were gonna relaunch those books right with a number one with ben as spider-man peter and mary jane would go off and have their baby and live happily ever after okay and, and ben was spider-man man that was a great time to be reading those comics they were a lot of fun I mean, that was that's like, like that's like the whole other discussion for a whole other podcast but we had a blast <laughs> it was a great another great era for me was working on the spider books yeah i, I would definitely you know now uh, I, I have the marvel unlimited digital app which is amazing and uh-huh. it just reading those clone sagas just one by one by one and there's like 70 issues in it before they ever get to ben even becoming spider-man it's just i'm i don't know like three quarters of the way through it's so much fun reading those again yeah yeah those are fun stories because i'm too lazy to get dig them out of my lawn boxes is what it boils down to but all right well good keep buying those new collections because then i'll get a check down the line there we go exactly all right uh i think we already answered this question but did maxwell lord shoot ted cord in the head during infinite crisis or did i imagine that you imagined it that's what i'm thinking too <laughs> all right count chocula or booberry hate them both <gasps> podcast <laughs> over <laughs> um on a scale of one to ten how okay. would you rate the 1980 grateful dead album go to heaven oh that's a sneaky question now you, have to explain, <laughs> you have to explain the context of that question i have when to I, or you have to uh, i guess i have to yeah, don't I? and this do. is not a five second answer either i b- before and and kind of overlapping with my early days in comics uh well first of all i was a musician i played in bands for years but i was also a music reviewer for a lot of different papers and I did some work for Rolling Stone and one of the albums that I reviewed was a Grateful Dead album called Go to Heaven which I uh, reviewed in a very shall we say dismissive fashion <laughs> which probably if I was doing it now I would probably write it very very differently but I was young and obnoxious and and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and but here's here's the pivotal point of that story in this five second answer that will take ten minutes um, <laughs> this review comes out um, this somewhat you know I, I actually reread it uh, uh, years later, and it wasn't as snarky as I remembered it. But it was, you know, it was not a positive review. And 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 I get this package in the mail from Rolling Stone, stuffed with letters from Grateful Dead fans oh. who have, you know, because. You know, you're at home talking to your friends. You're an opinionated jackass, and it's. I love having opinions, and I love reading critics, and you know, and I love talking about movies and books, and and being as big an opinionated asshole as anybody else in the room. But when you put it in print, and when you put it in print in Rolling Stone, which you know has a very big circulation and probably had a much bigger circulation then than it does now, 
people take it far more seriously than when you're sitting in the room with your friends, you know? <laughs> and these letters, you know, they, most of them weren't even angry. They were wounded. Oh, it was huh? as if I had written something horrible about their mothers. Oh, wow. You know? And I read these letters and I felt terrible. And that was the moment when I went, you know what? I do not want to be the guy sitting around criticizing other people's art. I want to be the guy who's creating the art and being criticized, you know? Okay. I certainly had my share of it over the years, you know? But, but you know, uh, and I have great respect for critics, for, for I should say, for, for good, the critics that write with real intelligence and insight, you know? Mm-hmm. The problem with it, with the internet is now anybody can, can go online and call themselves a critic, and that doesn't make you a critic, you know? Right. But there are really, really good people out there that really know how to write about comics and books and movies and, and, and music and write with real insight and intelligence. And that I really, really respect. But for me, I, I came to a point where I said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be the creator, not the guy that's uh, being judged. So that's the answer to your question about the great <laughs> I'd probably give it a positive review now because I'd be too guilty to give it a negative one. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sorry for the sneaky question. Had to slip it in there. Yeah. Uh, what is the most unusual thing you've been asked to autograph? Captain America's shield. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. some guy had Captain America's shield and, and had a bunch of people, I think, that had worked on Captain America sign it. That's a really clever idea. Right. Yeah, very cool. Now, as both a musician and a comic book writer, how many times have you been asked to play the 1960s Batman TV theme song? No one has ever asked me to play that song. Well, I'm now asking you. Not at this moment, but next time you pick up the guitar, you know, do that <laughs> Now I'm going to sit down and figure it out. Okay. <laughs> probably not that hard, is it? <laughs> My father could play it on a guitar, so it can't be that difficult. <laughs> All right, last one. You are in a life or death situation, and you have some big decisions to make. With you are Nort, General Glory, and Elrond. One of them you have to save, one of them you have to let die, and one of them you have to let become a supervillain. Which fate do you choose for each of them? Uh, I will let Elrond die because he's a robot and we can probably put him back together. <laughs> Clever. I will I will save Nort because I have to save Nort. He's just such a nice little puppy. <laughs> um, and and so then I, I'm going to let General Glory die and have him turn into a supervillain? There we go. That, okay, there we go. And then he'll end up working for Hydra. Oh, wait, but well, that's another character. Forget him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the lightning round, folks. And now, JM, before we go, we've talked yeah. about the Scooby books. We've talked about this this secret project you've got in the works of IDW. Is there anything else on the horizon people should be watching out for? You know, I think I mentioned everything I, I am at liberty to mention right now. Yeah, so um, I think I covered it all. I covered it all. Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It means the world to us. Obviously, we love everyone who's listening to this series. Uh, this podcast loves this series. They love the work you guys have done, and I want to make sure they're out there supporting you currently, and not just the old stuff. But and uh, thank you again, and I, I hope you consider coming back again sometime. I I, I absolutely will. Fantastic. <laughs> Whoa, dude, that was awesome. He was great, wasn't he? Oh man, that just made my day. Well, I want to send out a very special thank you to J.M. DiMatteis for appearing on this episode of the show and for helping us celebrate the JLI's 30th anniversary. Thank you very much. That's going to do it for this episode. Folks, come back next month when we cover Justice League International number 11. And I'll have a guest from the podcasting community to help me cover the issue. Who will it be? Sorry, you'll just have to wonder until next month. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag, and you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? 